Section 4 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Yu Qing in Singapore. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Manuel Kant. Translated by Paul Carus. Section 4. Second part of the transcendental problem. How is the science of nature possible? Nature is the existence of things, so far as it is determined according to universal laws. Should nature signify the existence of things in themselves, we can never cognize it, either a priori or a posteriori. Not a priori, for how can we know what belongs to things in themselves, since this never can be done by the dissection of our concepts in analytical judgment? We do not want to know what is contained in our concept of a thing, for the concept describes what belongs to its logical being, but what is in the actuality of the thing superadded to our concept, and by what the thing itself is determined in its existence outside the concept, our understanding, and the conditions on which alone it can connect the determinations of things in their existence, do not prescribe any rule to things themselves. These do not conform to our understanding, but it must conform itself to them, it must therefore be first given us in order to gather these determinations from them, wherefore they will not be cognized a priori. A cognition of the nature of things in themselves a posteriori would be equally impossible. For if experience is to teach us laws to which the existence of things is subject, these laws, if they regard things in themselves, must belong to them of necessity even outside our experience. But experience teaches us what exists and how it exists, but never that it must necessarily exist, so and not otherwise. Experience, therefore, can never teach us the nature of things in themselves. We, nevertheless, actually possess a pure science of nature, in which are propounded, a priori, and with all the necessity requisite to apodictical propositions, laws to which nature is subject. I need only call to witness that propedeutic of natural science which, under the title of the universal science of nature, precedes all physics, which is founded upon empirical principles. In it, we have mathematics applied to appearance, and also merely discursive principles, or those derived from concepts, which constitute the philosophical part of the pure cognition of nature. But there are several things in it, which are not quite pure and independent of empirical sources, such as the concept of motion, that of impenetrability, upon which the empirical concept of matter rests, that of inertia, and many others, which prevent its being called a perfectly pure science of nature. Besides, it only refers to objects of the external sense, and therefore does not give an example of a universal science of nature in the strict sense, for such a science must reduce nature in general, whether it regards the object of the external or that of the internal sense, the object of physics, as well as psychology, the universal laws. But among the principles of this universal physics, there are a few which actually have the required universality. For instance, the propositions that substance is permanent, and that every event is determined by a cause, according to constant laws, etc. These are actually universal laws of nature, which subsist completely a priori. There is then, in fact, a pure science of nature, and the question arises, how is it possible? The word nature assumes yet another meaning, which determines the object, 
whereas in the former sense it only denotes the conformity to law of the determinations of the existence of things generally. If we consider it material literature, that is, in the matter that forms its objects, nature is the complex of all the objects of experience, and with this only are we now concerned, for besides things which can never be objects of experience, if they must be cognized as to their nature, would oblige us to have recourse to concepts whose meaning can never be given in concreto by any example of possible experience. Consequently, we must form for ourselves a list of concepts of their nature, the reality whereof, that is, whether they actually refer to objects or mere creations of thought, could never be determined. The cognition of what cannot be an object of experience will be hyperphysical, and with things hyperphysical we are here not concerned, but only with the cognition of nature, the actuality of which can be conformed by experience, though it, the cognition of nature, is possible a priori and precedes all experience. The formal aspect of nature, in this narrower sense, is therefore the conformity to law of all the objects of experience, and so far as it is cognized a priori, the necessary conformity. But it has just been shown that the laws of nature can never be cognized a priori in objects so far as they are considered not in reference to possible experience, but as things in themselves. And our inquiry here extends not to things in themselves, the properties of which we pass by, but to things as objects of possible experience, and the complex of these is what we properly designate as nature. And now I ask, when the possibility of a cognition of nature a priori is in question, whether it is better to arrange the problem thus, how can we cognize a priori that things as objects of experience necessarily conform to law, or thus, how is it possible to cognize a priori the necessary conformity to law of experience itself as regards all its objects generally? Closely considered, the solution of the problem, represented in either way, amounts with regard to the pure cognition of nature, which is the point of the question at issue, entirely to the same thing. For the subjective laws, under which alone an empirical cognition of things is possible, hold good of these things as objects of possible experience, not as things in themselves, which are not considered here. Either of the following statements means quite the same. A judgment of observation can never rank as experience without the law that whenever an event is observed, it is always referred to some antecedent, which it follows according to a universal rule. And everything of which experience teaches that it happens must have a cause. It is, however, more commendable to choose the first formula, for we can a priori and previous to all given objects have a cognition of those conditions on which alone experience is possible, but never of the laws to which things may in themselves be subject, without reference to possible experience. We cannot, therefore, study the nature of things a priori otherwise than by investigating the conditions and the universal, though subjective, laws under which alone such a cognition as experience, as to mere form, is possible, and we determine accordingly the possibility of things as objects of experience. For, if I should choose the second formula, and seek the conditions a priori on which nature is an object of experience as possible, I might easily fall into error and fancy that I was speaking of nature as a thing in itself, and then move round in endless circles, in a vain search for laws concerning things of which nothing is given me. 
accordingly we shall here be concerned with experience only and the universal conditions of its possibility which are given a priori thence we shall determine nature as the whole object of all possible experience i think it will be understood that i here do not mean the rules of the observation of a nature that is already given for these already presuppose experience i do not mean how through experience we can study the laws of nature for these would not be laws a priori and would yield us no pure science of nature but i mean to ask how the conditions a priori of the possibility of experience are at the same time the sources from which all the universal laws of nature must be derived in the first place we must state that while all judgments of experience are empirical that is have their ground in immediate sense perception vice versa all empirical judgments are not judgments of experience but besides the empirical are in general besides what is given to the sensuous intuition particular concepts must yet be superadded concepts which have their origin quite a priori in the pure understanding and under which every perception must be first of all subsumed and then by their means changed into experience editor's note empirical judgments are either mere statements of fact namely records of a perception or statements of a natural law implying a causal connection between two facts the former can cause judgment of perception the latter judgments of experience end of editor's note empirical judgments so far as they have objective validity are judgments of experience but those which are only subjectively valid i name mere judgments of perception the latter require no pure concept of the understanding but only the logical connection of perception in a thinking subject but the former always require besides the representation of the sensuous intuition particular concepts originally begotten in the understanding which reduce the objective validity of the judgment of experience all our judgments are at first merely judgments of perception they hold good only for us that is for our subjects and we do not till afterwards give them a new reference to an object and desire that they shall always hold good for us and in the same way for everybody else for when a judgment agrees with an object all judgments concerning the same object must likewise agree among themselves and thus the objective validity of the judgment of experience signifies nothing else than its necessary universality of application and conversely when we have reason to consider a judgment necessarily universal which never depends upon perception but upon the pure concept of the understanding under which the perception is subsumed we must consider it objective also that is that it expresses not merely a reference of our perception to a subject but a quality of the object for there would be no reason for the judgments of the other men necessarily agreeing with mine if it were not the unity of the object to which they all refer and with which they accord hence they must all agree with one another therefore objective validity and necessary universality for everybody are equivalent terms and though we do not know the object in itself yet when we consider a judgment as universal and also necessary we understand it to have objective validity by this judgment we recognize the object though it remains unknown as it is in itself by the universal and necessary connection of the given perception as this is the case with all objects of sense judgments of experience take their objective validity not from the immediate cognition of the object which is impossible 
but from the condition of universal validity empirical judgments which as already said never rests upon empirical or in short sensuous conditions but upon a pure concept of the understanding the object always remains unknown in itself but when by the concept of the understanding the connection of the representations of the objects which are given to our sensibility is determined as universally valid the object is determined by this relation and it is the judgment that is objective to illustrate the matter when we say the room is warm sugar sweet and warm wood bitter authors note i freely grant that these examples do not represent such judgments of perception as ever could become judgments of experience even though a concept of the understanding were superadded because they refer merely to feeling which everybody knows to be merely subjective and which of course can never be attributed to the object and consequently never become objective i only wish to give here an example of a judgment that is merely subjectively valid containing no ground for universal validity and thereby for relation to the object an example of the judgments of perception which becomes judgments of experience by superadded concepts of the understanding will be given in the next note end of author's note we have only subjectively valid judgments i do not at all expect that i or any other person shall always find it as i now do each of these sentences only expresses the relation of two sensations to the same subject to myself and that only in my present state of perception consequently they're not valid of the object such are judgments of perception judgments of experience are of quite a different nature what experience teaches me under circumstances it must always teach me and everybody and its validity is not limited to the subject nor to its state at a particular time hence i pronounce all such judgments as being objectively valid for instance when i say the air is elastic this judgment is as yet a judgment of perception only i do nothing but refer two of my sensations to one another but if i would have it called a judgment of experience i require this connection to stand under a condition which makes it universally valid i desire therefore that i and everybody else should always connect necessarily the same perceptions under the same circumstances we must consequently analyze the experience in order to see what is contained in this product of the senses and of the understanding and how the judgment of experience itself is possible the foundation is the intuition of which i become conscious that is perception perceptio which pertains merely to the senses but in the next place there are acts of judging which belong only to the understanding but this judging may be twofold first i may merely compare perceptions and connect them in a particular state of my consciousness or secondly i may connect them in consciousness generally the former judgment is merely a judgment of perception and of subjective validity only it is merely a connection of perceptions in my mental state without reference to the object hence it is not as is commonly imagined enough for experience to compare perceptions and to connect them in consciousness through judgment there arises no universality and necessity for which alone judgments can become objectively valid and be called experience quite another judgment therefore is required before perception can become experience the given intuition must be subsumed under a concept which determines the form of judging in general relatively to the intuition connects its empirical consciousness 
in consciousness generally, and thereby procures universal validity for empirical judgments. A concept of this nature is a pure a priori concept of the understanding, which does nothing but determine for an intuition the general way in which it can be used for judgments. Let the concept be that of cause, then it determines the intuition which is subsumed under it, for example, that of air relative to judgments in general. Namely, the concept of the air serves with regard to its expansion in the relation of antecedents to consequence in a hypothetical judgment. The concept of cause, accordingly, is a pure concept of the understanding, which is totally disparate from all possible perception, and only serves to determine the representation subsumed under it, relatively to judgments in general, and so to make a universally valid judgment possible. Before, therefore, a judgment of perception can become a judgment of experience, it is requisite that the perception should be subsumed under some such a concept of the understanding. For instance, air ranks under the concept of causes, which determines our judgment about it in regard to its expansion as hypothetical. Author's note. As an easier example, we may take the following. When the sun shines on the stone, it grows warm. This judgment, however often I and others may have perceived it, is a mere judgment of perception and contains no necessity. Perceptions are only usually conjoined in this manner. But if I say, the sun warms the stone, I add to the perception a concept of the understanding, namely, that of cause, which connects with the concept of sunshine, that of heat, as a necessary consequence. And the synthetical judgment becomes of necessity usually valid, namely, objective, and is converted from a perception into experience. End of author's note. Thereby, the expansion of the air is represented not as merely belonging to the perception of the air in my present state or in several states of mind, or in the state of perception of others, but as belonging to it necessarily. The judgment, the air is elastic, becomes universally valid, and the judgment of experience, only by certain judgments preceding it, which subsume the intuition of air under the concept of cause and effect and they thereby determine the perceptions, not merely as regards one another in me, but relatively to the form of judging in general, which is here hypothetical, and in this way they render the empirical judgment universally valid. If all our synthetical judgments are analyzed so far as they are objectively valid, it will be found that they never consist of mere intuitions connected only, as is commonly believed, by comparison into the judgment, but that it would be impossible were not a pure concept of the understanding superadded to the concepts abstracted from intuition, under which concepts these latter are subsumed, and in this manner only combined into an objectively valid judgment. Even the judgments of pure mathematics in their simplest axioms are not exempt from this condition. The principle a straight line is the shortest between two points, presupposes that the line is subsumed under the concept of quantity, which is certainly in no mere intuition, but has a seat in the understanding alone and serves to determine the intuition of the line with regard to the judgments which may be made about it relatively to their quantity, that is, to plurality, as judicia plurativa. Author's note. 
This name seems preferable to the term particularia, which is used for these judgments in logic, for the latter implies the idea that they are not universal. But when I start from unity in single judgments, and so proceed to universality, I must not, even indirectly and negatively, imply any reference to universality. I think plurality merely without universality, and not the exception from universality. This is necessary if logical considerations shall form the basis of the pure concept of the understanding. However, there is no need of making changes in logic. End of author's note. For under them, it is understood that in a given intuition, there is contained a plurality of homogeneous parts. To prove, then, the possibility of experience so far as it rests upon pure concepts of the understanding a priori, we must first represent what belongs to judgments in general and the various functions of the understanding in a complete table, where the pure concepts of the understanding must run parallel to these functions, as such concepts are nothing more than concepts of the intuitions in general, so far as these are determined by one or other of these functions of judging in themselves, that is, necessarily and universally. Hereby, also the a priori principles of the possibility of all experience, as of an objectively valid empirical cognition, will be precisely determined. For they are nothing but propositions by which all perception is, under certain universal conditions of intuition, subsumed under those pure concepts of the understanding. Logical table of judgments. 1. As to quantity, universal, particular, singular. 2. As to quality, affirmative, negative, infinite. 3. As to relation, categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive. 4. As to modality, problematical, assertorial, Apodictical. Transcendental table of the pure concepts of the understanding. 1. As to quantity. Unity. The measure. Plurality. The quantity. Totality. The whole. 2. As to quality. Reality. Negation. Limitation. 3. As to relation, substance, cause, community. 4. As to modality, possibility, existence, necessity. Pure physiological table of the universal principles of the science of nature. 1. Axioms of intuition. 2. Anticipations of perception. 3. Analogies of experience. 4. Postulates of empirical thinking generally. In order to comprise the whole matter in one idea, it is first necessary to remind the reader that we are discussing not the origin of experience, but of that which lies in experience. The former pertains to empirical psychology, and would even then never be adequately explained without the latter, 
which belongs to the critique of cognition and particularly of the understanding. Experience consists of intuitions, which belong to the sensibility, and of judgments, which are entirely a work of the understanding. But the judgments, which the understanding forms alone from sensuous intuitions, are far from being judgments of experience. For in the one case, the judgment connects only the perceptions as they are given in the sensuous intuition, while in the other, the judgments must express what experience in general, and not what the mere perception, which possesses only subjectively validity, contains. The judgment of experience must therefore act the sensuous intuition and its logical connection in the judgment, after it has been re rendered universal by comparison, something that determines the synthetical judgment as necessary and therefore as universally valid. This can be nothing else than that concept which represents the intuition as determined in itself with regard to one form of judgment rather than the other, namely, a concept of that synthetical unity of intuitions, which can only be represented by a given logical function of judgment. The sum of the matter is this. The business of the senses is to intuit, that of the understanding is to think. But thinking is uniting representations in one consciousness. This union originates either merely relative to the subject and is accidental and subjective, or is absolute and is necessary or objective. The union of representation in one consciousness is judgment. Thinking, therefore, is the same as judging, or referring representations to judgments in general. Hence, judgments are either merely subjective, when representations are referred to a consciousness in one subject only, and united in it, or objective, when they are united in a consciousness generally, that is, necessarily. The logical functions of all judgments are but various modes of uniting representations in consciousness, but if they serve for concepts, they are concepts of their necessary union in a consciousness, and so principles objectively valid judgments. This union in a consciousness is either analytical by identity or synthetical by the combination and addition of various representations one to another. Experience consists in the synthetical connections of phenomena, perceptions, in consciousness, so far as this connection is necessary. Hence, the pure concepts of the understanding are those under which all perceptions must be subsumed Air, they can serve for judgments of experience, in which the synthetical unity of the perceptions is represented as necessary and universally valid. Author's note. But how does this proposition, that judgments of experience contain necessity in the synthesis of perceptions, agree with my statement so often before inculcated, that experience as cognition a posteriori can afford contingent judgments only. When I say that experience teaches me something, I mean only the perception that lies in experience. For example, that heat always allows the shining of the sun on a stone. Consequently, the, the proposition of experience is always so far accidental that 
this heat necessarily follows the shining of the sun is contained indeed in the judgment of experience by means of the concept of cause yet is a fact not learned by the experience for conversely experience is first of all generated by this addition of the concept of the understanding of cause to perception how perception attains this addition may be seen by referring in the critique itself to the section on the transcendental faculty of judgment and a father's note judgments when considered merely as the condition of the union of given representations in a consciousness are rules these rules so far as they represent the union as necessary are rules a priori and so far as they cannot be deduced from higher rules of fundamental principles but in regard to the possibility of all experience merely in relation to the form of thinking in it no conditions of judgments of experience are higher than those which bring the phenomena according to the various form of their intuition under pure concepts of the understanding and to render the empirical judgment objectively valid these concepts are therefore the a priori principles of possible experience the principles of possible experience are then at the same time universal laws of nature which can be cognized a priori and thus the problem in our second question how is the pure science of nature possible is solved for the system which is required for the form of a science is to be met with imperfection here because beyond the above mentioned formal conditions of all judgments in general offered in logic no others are possible and these constitute a logical system the concepts grounded thereupon which contain the a priori conditions all synthetical and necessary judgments accordingly constitute a transcendental system finally the principles by means of which all phenomena are subsumed under these concepts constitute a physical system editor's note kant uses the term physiological in its etymological meaning as pertaining to the science of physics that is nature in general not as we use the term now as pertaining to the functions of the living body accordingly it has been translated physical end of editor's note that is a system of nature which receives all empirical cognition of nature makes it even possible and hence may in strictness be denominated the universal and pure science of nature the first one of the physiological principles author's note the three following paragraphs will hardly be understood unless reference be made to what the critique itself says on the subject of the principles they will however be of service in giving a general view of the principles and in fixing the attention on the main points end of author's note subsumes all phenomena as intuitions in space and time under the concept of quantity and in so far a principle of the application of mathematics to experience the second one subsumes the empirical elements namely sensations which denotes the real intuitions not indeed directly under the concept of quantity because sensation is not an intuition that contains 
either space or time, though it places the respective object into both. But still, there is between reality, sense representation, and the general or total void of intuition in time, a difference which has a quantity. For between every given degree of light and of darkness, between every degree of heat and of absolute cold, between every degree of weight and of absolute lightness. Between every degree of occupied space and of totally void space, diminishing degrees can be conceived in the same manner as between consciousness and total unconsciousness, the darkness of a psychological blank. Ever diminishing degrees obtain; hence, there is no perception that can prove an absolute absence of it. For instance, no psychological darkness that cannot be considered as a kind of consciousness. This occurs in all cases of sensation, and so the understanding can anticipate even sensations, which constitute the peculiar quality of empirical representations, appearances, by means of the principle that they all have. Consequently, that what is real in all phenomena has a degree. Here is the second application of mathematics to the science of nature. Anent the relation. Of appearances merely with a view to their existence, the determination is not mathematical but dynamical, and can never be objectively valid. Consequently, never fit for experience if it does not come under a priori principles by which the cognition of experience relative to the appearances becomes even possible. Hence, appearances must be, must be subsumed under the concept of substance. Which is the foundation of all determination of existence, as a concept of the thing itself, or secondly, so far as a succession is found among phenomena, that is, an event under the concept of an effect, with reference to cause, or lastly, so far as coexistence is to be known objectively, that is, by a judgment of experience, under the concept of community, action and reaction. Thus. A priori principles form the basis of objectively valid, though empirical judgments, that is, of the possibility of experience, so far as it must connect objects as existing in nature. These principles are the proper laws of nature, which may be termed dynamical. Finally, the cognition of the agreements and connection not only of appearances among themselves in experience. But of their relation to experience in general, belonging to the judgments of experience, this relation contains either their agreement with the formal conditions which the understanding recognizes, or their coherence with the materials of the senses of perception, or combines both into one concept. Consequently, it contains possibility, actuality, and necessity according to universal laws of nature. And this constitutes the phys physical doctrine of method, or the distinction of truth and of hypotheses, and the bounds of the certainty of the latter. The third table of principles drawn from the nature of the understanding itself, after the critical method, shows an inherent perfection, which raises it far above every other table, which has hitherto, though in vain, been tried. Or may yet to be tried by analyzing the objects of themselves dogmatically, 
it exhibits all synthetical a priori principles completely and according to one principle, namely, the faculty of judging in general, constituting the essence of experience as regards the understanding, so that we can be certain that there are no more such principles, a satisfaction such as can never be attained by the dogmatical method. Yet this is not all. There is still a greater merit in it. We must carefully bear in mind the proof which shows the possibility of this cognition a priori, and at the same time limits all such principles to a condition which must never be lost sight of, if we desire it not to be misunderstood, and extend it in use beyond the original sense which the understanding attaches to it. This limit is that they contain nothing but the conditions of possible experience in general, so far as it is subjected to laws a priori. Consequently, I do not say that things in themselves possess a quantity, that their actuality possesses a degree, their existence a connection of accidents in a substance, etc. This nobody can prove, because such a synthetical connection from mere concepts without any reference to sensuous intuition on the one side or connection of it in a possible experience on the other is absolutely impossible. The essential limitation of the concepts in these principles, then, is that all things stand necessarily a priori under the aforementioned conditions as objects of experience only. Hence, there follows, secondly, a specifically peculiar mode of proof of these principles. They are not directly referred to appearances and to their relations, but to the possibility of experience, of which appearances constitute the matter only, not the form. Thus, they are referred to objectively and universally valid synthetical propositions, in which we distinguish judgments of experience from the, those of perception. This takes place because appearances, as mere intuitions, occupying a part of space and time, come under the concept of quantity, which unites their multiplicity a priori according to rules synthetically. Again, so far as the perception contains, besides intuition, sensibility, and between the latter and nothing, that is, the total disappearance of sensibility, there is an ever-decreasing transition. It is apparent that that which is in appearances must have a degree, so far as it, namely the perception, does not itself occupy any part of space or of time. Others note, heat and light are in a small space just as large as to degree as in a large one. In one manner, the internal representations, pain, consciousness in general, whether they last a short or a long time, need not vary as to the degree. Hence, the quantity is here in a point and in a moment, just as great as in any space or time, however great. Degrees are therefore capable of increase, but not in intuition, rather than in mere sensation, or the quantity of the degree of intuition. Hence, they can only be estimated quantitatively by the relation of 1 to 0, namely, by their capability of decreasing by infinite intermediate degrees to disappearance, or of increasing from naught through infinite gradations to a determinate sensation in a certain time. The degrees of quality must be measured by equality.
and of author's note. Still, the transition to actuality from empty time or empty space is only possible in time. Consequently, though sensibility, as the quality of empirical intuition, can never be cognized a priori by specific difference from other sensibilities, yet it can, in a possible experience in general, as the quantity of perception be intensely distinguished from every other similar perception. Hence, the application of mathematics to nature, as regards the sensuous intuition by which nature is given to us, becomes possible and is thus determined. Above all, the reader must pay attention to the mode of proof of the principles, which occur under the title of analogies of experience. For these do not refer to the genesis of intuitions, as do the perceptions of applied mathematics, but to the connection of their existence in experience, and this can mean nothing but the determination of their existence in time according to necessary laws, under which alone the connection is objectively valid, and thus becomes experience. The proof, therefore, does not turn on the synthetical unity in the connection of things in themselves, but merely of perceptions, and of these not in regard to their matter, but to the determination of time and of the relation of their existence in it according to universal laws. If the empirical determination in relative time is indeed objectively valid, that is, experience, these universal laws contain the necessary determination of existence in time generally, namely, according to a rule of the understanding a priori. In these prolegomena, I cannot further discount on the subject, but my reader, who has probably been long accustomed to consider experience a mere empirical synthesis of perception, and hence not considered that it goes much beyond them as it imparts to empirical judgments universal validity, and for that purpose requires a pure and a priori unity of the understanding, is recommended to pay special attention to this distinction of experience from a mere aggregate of perceptions and to judge the mode of proof from this point of view. End of section 4. Recording by Yu Qing in Singapore.